Hello and welcome to Course Chambers Westgarth High Viz Podcast, the project's podcast series. My name is Hannah Lee and I am a law graduate with the Course Project Practice Group. I'm joined by Course Senior Associate David Hasty and Consultant Wayne Josick. Our podcast will focus on the Course Project's update for this quarter, commenting on major judicial developments affecting the construction and infrastructure industry in recent months. Today we will discuss three interesting cases. The High Court's decision in Victorian Building Authority and Angiotis, which deals with the application of Commonwealth Mutual Recognition legislation and considerations of good character requirement. The New South Wales Supreme Court case, Langston Holdings Propriety Limited and Duffy Kennedy Propriety Limited, which is a good illustration of the limitations of expert determination. And lastly, we'll be discussing global claims in Built and Byron's Western Australia Propriety Limited and Perth Airport Propriety Limited Number 2. David and Wayne, welcome. David, perhaps if we could start with you, can you please tell us more about the VBA and Andriotis decision? Thanks for that, Hannah. Um, well, we'll begin with, um, in a recent unanimous decision of the High Court in VBA and Andriotis, the High Court effectively ruled that a building practitioner could not be barred from registering interstate under the mutual recognition legislation, even though the interstate registration body found that particular practitioner had lied in their registration application in the first jurisdiction, which in this case was New South Wales. Um, the central issue in question was whether the Commonwealth Mutual Recognition Act permitted the uh, Victorian Building Practitioners Board to consider whether Mr Andriotis was of good character under the relevant section of the Victorian Building Act, which in this case was section 171C, um, when addressing his application for registration in Victoria and whether this provision fell within the mutual recognition principle exception under the Commonwealth Act. Um, Ultimately, the High Court held that a state authority, which in this case, as I've mentioned, was the Victorian Building Authority or the VBA, does not have a discretionary power to refuse to register a building practitioner who is already registered in another state, again, which um, the example here was New South Wales. Uh, what this means is that the second state, um, being Victoria, can't oppose, oh, sorry, I should say impose a higher standard or qualification for registration than the first state. So in short, um, what we refer to as the mutual recognition principle or Section 17.1 of the Commonwealth Act, unsurprisingly was held to trump um, a good character requirement in state legislation under the Victorian Building Act. Um, so what does the um, Commonwealth Act say? Well, the mutual recognition principle provides that a person registered for an occupation in, in one state may be registered in an equivalent occupation in another state or territory after only notifying the local registration authority of that particular second state or territory. Um, further, uh, Section 22, 20 um, subsection 2 provides that the local registration authority, which here was the Victorian Bil uh, Building Practitioners Board, may grant registration on that particular ground. Um, section 17 subsection 2 provides for an exception, which is that the mutual recognition principle must not affect the operation of laws that regulate the manner of carrying on an occupation in that second state. Now, this is contingent on those laws not being um, and I quote, based on the attainment or um, possession of some qualification or experience relating to the fitness to carry on that occupation. So on the facts, what are we dealing with here? Um, 
Andriotis was a registered waterproofer in New South Wales and under the Commonwealth's Mutual Recognition Act, he sought to be registered in Victoria. However, as part of his application for his New South Wales registration, it was found that he'd actually made false statements relevant to his work experience. Now, the Victorian Building Practitioners Board subsequently refused to grant Andriotis registration on the basis that his New South Wales application demonstrated both uh, dishonesty and he was therefore uh, not of good character as required by the Victorian Building Act and the relevant uh, Victorian scheme which um, relates to uh, registration. Now, the board refused to grant his registration and ultimately the uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal also upheld this decision. However, Andriota successfully appealed to the federal court where it was held that, firstly, a local registration authority does not uh, retain any discretion to refuse registration under Section 20, Subsection 2 of the Mutual uh, Recognition Legislation. And in any event, this uh, good character requirement under the Victorian Building Act does not fall within the exception um, to the Mutual Recognition Principle. Um, after finding its way into the High Court, uh, the seven judges handed down four separate judgments, which were all consistent in that uh, the VBA's appeal was unanimously dismissed with costs and the matter was remitted to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So what do we take away from this decision? Um, on its face, it seems like quite a counterintuitive decision, uh, especially in the wake of what seems like a recent tidal wave of serious defects, particularly in, you know, your high-rise multi-dwelling residential buildings. Um, where a regulation body like Victoria's um, uh, Practitioners Board can't reject um, a building practitioner who is not of good character, alarm bells naturally ring, and especially in the context of um, consumer confidence, um, but as the High Court did emphasise in this particular judgment, the, you know, the VBA could take disciplinary action against a rogue practitioner or similar, similarly, should the first state impose any restrictions on that particular practitioner, you know, in this case such as Andriotis, um, they would naturally filter down via the Commonwealth Act. So while there is obviously no uniform regulations or legislation governing um, builder and trade licensing in Australia at this particular point in time, this High Court decision really does, however, emphasise the need for the states and territories to take a nationally consistent approach to assessment of um, practitioner comp competency. Thank you very much, Dave, for that insightful discussion. Um, now, Wayne, um, can you please tell us a bit about the Lainston Holdings case? Sure. So the Lainston Holdings case is in many ways uh, a, a neat, simple illustration of why expert determination can be very alluring, but why it can also lead to some serious difficulties, perhaps that parties don't necessarily appreciate. So there's not really any need to get into the facts of this case, but essentially Lainson engaged Duffy to do some construction work. Uh, construction work happened to be at Cronulla, but instead of having a nice time at the beach, they ended up in the New South Wales Supreme Court before Justice Hammerschlag. So... The way this came about was that the parties had a construction contract and for reasons that aren't terribly clear, had a separate deed providing that disputes under the construction contract will be dealt with by expert determination. Nothing new there. Now, they linked that expert determination to the IAMA rules. And I'm going to take a bit of an aside here and just remind people that IAMA has now become the Resolution Institute, so it's slightly outdated, not ideal drafting nowadays. Now, the critical thing is that those old IAMA rules provided two things. 
So one was that the expert's determination was to be final and binding. Now think about that for a second. They're pretty clear words. The second thing that's provided for in the rules is that the expert is to determine the dispute according to law. So this is these are the two critical requirements. So the dispute came about because Lainson considered that Duffy was in serious breach. Lainson purported to terminate, and of course we might imagine the next line, which is that Duffy considered that that purported termination was in fact a repudiation, so they were fighting at this point about who was the wrongdoer. So the dispute ends up in expert determination. Now what the expert decided was that the contract was subject to an implied term, an implied term that the right to terminate would be exercised, had to be exercised reasonably and in good faith. So there's a question about whether that implied term should have been recognised and that's really the issue. As a consequence, the expert found that Lainson had not terminated in accordance with that applied term and so Lainson effectively became the wrongdoer because it had repudiated the contract. So Lainson doesn't like this and appeals to the Supreme Court and essentially the argument that Lainson makes is that the expert has made an error of law. So before Justice Hammerschlag, there are really two issues. One is what it means for the expert to decide according to law. And Justice Hammerschlag deals with this, as one might imagine, very systematically reaches the conclusion that the words according to law impose some constraints on the expert. So the expert, for example, has to be honest, can't be biased, can't be colluding, those sorts of things but doesn't mean that the expert has to get everything absolutely right. Second issue is whether the court should intervene to correct what may be an, ex an error of law. And there the problem is this. Expert determination is a contractual agreement between the parties. It is not supported by legislation in the way that commercial arbitration is. And so... His Honour thought that it wasn't appropriate for the court to intervene in this circumstance because the parties had set up, had agreed a contractual mechanism, that contractual mechanism had been applied. And so really that's what the parties had agreed at the very beginning. And I think the critical message as a result is that if you agree to a contract that provides for final and binding expert determination, unsurprisingly, that expert determination is likely to be final and binding. And that's so even if the expert gets the law wrong. So that's a very neat decision for reminding us about some of the limitations of expert determination. Thank you very much, Wayne. Um, now, if you could also tell us a bit about the Built Environs and Perth Airport case. Yes. So I think the critical thing is there in the name of the case. Uh, it's a, a case that um, arose um, out of the, the Perth Airport project. And it's a complex project. Lots of things can go wrong. And what we commonly find is that it's really difficult to untangle everything that's happened. So I want you to compare that sort of construction project with somebody, for example, slipping in a supermarket. Their issues of causation are not terribly difficult. But when you have so many things going wrong, some of which might be attributed to 
problems in the world, some to the principal, some to the contractor, then there's a real difficulty in evidence. And so the case really raises the issue of what are sometimes called global claims. And it's different terminology. The judgment's actually very useful in talking about distinctions between like true global claims, total cost claims, modified total cost claims. But really one of the problems with all of these claims is what you prove. There's, you have to be sympathetic uh, for the contractor. It's very difficult to prove chains of causation. But, of course, for the principal, um, it's very difficult to oppose a claim for a large amount of money without much detail. To me, that's the central issue that arises practically in this case. Um, Dave, I'm wondering whether you have any thoughts about the case and I suppose the practical implications of these sorts of global claims, however we describe them. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. Um, I suppose when it comes to these sorts of global claims, you know, we often, you know, from firms like Cause, we often sound a bit like broken records. But um, if you are a claimant contractor, you really should only be considering bringing a global claim as a claim of last resort, Wayne, I I really would have thought. Um, You know, you should only contemplate making a global claim if, you know, say the traditional approach you know, for example, tying specific um, costs to um, specific causal uh, causal events isn't available to you. Um, I guess, too, you know, things to remember if going down the global class, uh, claim path uh, for a claimant is, you know, ensure there are no other sort of causes um, of uh, the costs claimed and this must be crystal clear in your particular claim, which in this particular um, case, it, it just wasn't... Um, uh, built um, built environs um, really struggled with that. They were um, granted uh, leave of the court to uh, put on further expert evidence, which, frankly, um, my understanding is it, it didn't really um, give much to uh, to the judge, and, and in particular to uh, to Perth airports. Well, that's right, and I think the the really interesting thing about this case is that essentially, in the Western Australian Supreme Court, Kenneth Martin, uh, just Kenneth Martin, uh, really invited the principal uh, to move to strike out the um, the relevant parts of the claim. So it's just a, a clear reminder um, of these difficulties of proof that if you're going to make the claim, essentially you have to be able to deal with questions of causation. It's an issue that's come up in numerous cases, main tech. Um, in the New South Wales Court of Appeal is another prominent example and really in all these cases the message is the same. Um, you need to prove and causation is the real difficulty in these global claims. Yeah, that's that's right, Wayne. Um, you know, um, Justice Martin in particular issued case management orders, you know, requiring built environs to file and serve you know, expert evidence um, of what they were alleging to be general drawing deficiencies um, and they also granted leave for built environs to plead the facts establishing um, the allegations and causation of loss re- relevant to the, these alleged general drawing deficiencies and, frankly, they didn't do a good job of that and, as a result, um, Justice, uh, Justice Martin got quite frustrated and, um, and it was all thrown out in the end, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. And I think that's, unfortunately for contractors, the common result in these global claims cases. David and Wayne, thank you so much for joining me. My name is Hannah Lee and this has been the Cause High Viz podcast. Thank you for listening. As always, this podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. You should always seek legal advice about your specific circumstances.